We invite your attention and your reading in your Bibles today to Jonah chapter 3. We'll read the last verse of chapter 3 and five verses of chapter 4 in the book of Jonah. A little four-chapter book packed with all kinds of lessons, substance, and spiritual subject matter. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Dost thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city." The Bible, of course, is the most unique book that there ever has been. And there's very few people that understand very much of it. To most, most all of it is a mystery. I can remember a startling realization of this one time when somebody I was discussing the Bible with or mentioning something about the Bible and, and they knew I was a preacher and a Christian and so forth. And they said, well, the Bible just doesn't make any sense to me. And in one sense, I thought, well, how can it not? And then I began to ponder that and I understood it. You know, the natural man receiveth not the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. So the unbelieving, the Bible, is a complete mystery. It is some neat, cute, wonderful little stories and lessons and practical applications in places, you know, uh, that people can get things from, but they can get those from the library or Mother Goose or somewhere else. But the spiritual meaning doesn't mean anything to them. But the Bible has many things to us as Christians, like the book of Jonah, that are excerpts and examples from people's lives. And they're there to instruct us. And I want us to understand and remind you of this at the onset, that the Bible is not God's evidence for us to judge the people that are mentioned in it. Now, that's the easiest thing to do, is read about Jonah, read about Peter, read about David, read about Abraham, anybody you want to read about, you'll find a fault, and judge them. It don't take any effort whatsoever, hardly. You don't have to lift a little finger, hardly to do it. But that's not why God gave us the Bible with these excerpts, narratives, and examples of people's lives. They're not all negative. We have positive ones. We have negative ones. We have successes. We have failure. We have blessings. We have chastenings. But the Bible was given for us not to judge, but to apply. To apply. And it don't matter what you're reading in the Bible. If you fail to make a personal application to yourself, 
then it's meaningless. It becomes absolutely meaningless. This is why the gospel doesn't make any sense to sinners. They don't personally apply it. This is why the truths of this book fall on deaf ears. It's not applied. It's not because it's untruth. It's not because it's not presented. It's not personally applied. It will only benefit you if you apply it personally. But again, most people want to sit in judgment either of the book as a whole or parts of the book or what's true and what's not true or why this happened and that happened. We're not reading the text we read today to condemn Jonah. We will not justify anyone's wrongdoing in the book, out of the book, or in our own lives. We will not take that liberty. But our purpose, anytime we look at somebody's successes or failures, is to make a personal application. It's here to benefit you and me. And if we fail to connect those two dots where we are benefited by either what happened for good or what happened for bad to this person, then we just missed it. It's just a neat, nice little story. And it went in one ear and out the other. So, whether it is meaningful or meaningless depends upon the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. The stories that are meaningless to us as lost take on a whole new picture and meaning by the grace of God. Because you see, it is the grace of God and the grace of God alone by which we can and do make that personal application. It is the Holy Spirit that does not allow us to sit and judge Isaac or Rebecca or Jonah, but says, that's you. When Nathan told David, thou art the man that hits us all, one way or another. And that's why it's men. So today as I try to speak to you from this book of Jonah, I feel like I'm speaking to you from the book of Arthur. And I think if you're saved by the grace of God, what's in this book, you could put your name there. And so we could in so many places in the Bible. So, let's start off with the right perspective, shall we? Jonah has got a lot of nicknames. He's been called the runaway prophet, the rebellious prophet, the pouting prophet, all kinds of things, and I suppose he deserves all of them from what we read about him and what we're told. But I want to speak to you concerning this text today with the subject of pouting over providence. And not to draw attention to Jonah, but to learn from Jonah's pouting. The last verse I read to you there in chapter 4, when he went out of the city, verse 5, made him a little booth and sat out there in the shadow to see what was going to become the city. Jonah's pouting. What's he pouting over? Providence. What do any of us pout over? Providence. So may God help us as we look into this today to be benefited by this example of pouting. What is pouting? Well, a couple of things can describe it pretty easily. Number one, it's a pretty childish thing because children tend to do it quite naturally. As adults, we should grow out of it. 
Some people don't. But it's one of the most selfish things or manifestations of selfishness there is, to pout. Why do children pout? They pout because they don't get their own way. That's what it all boils down to. And so we certainly shouldn't be seen or practiced as being pouting Christians. But at the same time, I'm sure it is an affliction that tempts all of us from time to time and that we can fall into a failure to that temptation. But literally, if you look up the word, it's somewhat interesting. Uh, The word literally means to push out the lips. And, you know, that's a natural tendency of little children. Where does that come from except sinful depravity? Where do they learn that, okay, when you feel bad, you push out your lips? Nobody teaches a child that. They just learn it, don't they? That pushing out the lips is is the manifestation outwardly of the sullen, selfish displeasure from within. I've been whipped for that, and I've whipped my kids for that. That little pushing out the lips and getting sold up over something because they didn't get their way. But, you know, it's kind of sad. I was thinking about Jonah, and he comes to mind when you think about pouting. And you know who else came to my mind? And you help me out here later. Tell me if somebody else in the Bible comes to your mind about pouting as an example of pouting. But the only other person that came to my mind immediately was Ahab, the old wicked king. Remember that? The grown man, the king, and when he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard, what did he do? He went home and pouted on Jezebel's chest. You know, I'm using that figure of expression, it's not literal. But he did go home and pout. Why? He didn't get his own way. So that, I, you know, I feel sorry for Jonah that be lumped in the category with Ahab, but we can be too in that regard. Well, Jonah's pouting's without excuse, and Jonah probably doesn't deserve our sympathy, except that we can sympathize with him because we see what sinfulness can do, because we've experienced the same thing. So, in some sense, we can, uh, without justifying his sin. Be sympathetic toward him because we've been there, done that. But this all begins, and it's all really the whole book of Jonah, could be summarized or wrapped up in two things. Disobedience and chastisement. That's what the whole book's about. And this pouting is just one of the things that happens in between the disobedience and chastisement. But you know how this book begins. It starts with, and again, this is probably one of the best lessons for us, how to not be tempted by pouting is just obey God. I mean, Jonah was told in the very beginning, I'm not going to read all this, you know it quite well, to go to that great city Nineveh and preach to them, you know, that God's going to overthrow it in 40 days because their sin is so great and it has come up before God. almost sounds like the flood. And Jonah, like Abraham, doesn't hesitate, but he does the opposite of what Abraham did. Instead of saddling his ass and heading toward Nineveh, he hits the trail and heads the opposite way. Now, I'm not going into the geography, but just suppose you lived in 
Arkansas or Missouri and God told you to go to New York City and preach to that great wicked city and you foot trailed it to Los Angeles to catch a boat to the Hawaii. That's about what it amounted to. Just about that kind of illustration and just about those directions. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. During the Assyrian reign that conquered the northern ten tribes of Israel, Nineveh. And at the end of this fourth chapter, the last verse, God mentions the populace of Nineveh. And he says there's 60,000 people there that can't tell their right hand from their left. Well, we got some children here today. And, uh, you know, they're down, they're in first, second, third grade, what have you. I think they know their right hand from their left. At what point or age they learned right from left, I'm not sure. But again, we're talking infant or small children, are we not? By that diagnosis of not knowing right from left. 60,000. So, no telling what the adult population was. The city is like a three-day journey to get through. I mean, it's big. I've always been amazed at, I guess Houston's the biggest city I was ever in. I don't know, can't remember. But driving through Houston, you can sit on the interstate and drive 75 miles an hour for over an hour and you never get out of the city limit. That just always kind of mind-boggling, you know. Well, Nineveh was just that kind of city. It was a Gentile city. And uniquely in this book of Jonah, we see one of the greatest city-wide revivals that there ever has been in any city, much less one of this size. And yet the instrument God used is pouting about it. Kind of ironic, isn't it? His instructions were clear. Go and preach to them. He went the opposite way. He didn't do what he did out of ignorance. He knew what to do. James 4.17 says, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it's sin. He lit a shuck the opposite way. There's no excuse. Except that he didn't like what he was told and he didn't and wasn't going to do it. The Bible literally uses this language in that first chapter that he fled or flee fled from the presence of the Lord. And let's see, where is that? Verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. Last part of the verse, to go with them from the presence of the Lord. Now, the word there literally means from the face of the Lord. Not necessarily presence as we think, that you're present with the Lord, but from the face of the Lord. And I want to make a point here. When we're in obedience to God, when we're seeking God's will, when we're praying into God and we're fellowshipping with God, we're before God's face. That's throughout the Bible. I mean, the face of God. The angels are before the face of God. Worship, praise, adoration, thankfulness, all the good things happen in the face of God. When you flee from God, what are you going to do? 
If I fled from you right now, what's the first thing I'm going to... I'm going to turn away from you. I'm going to have my back to you, not my face. When we sin, every sin can be the first step toward backsliding. It's called that for a reason. It's to turn from God's face. It's to turn our back toward God. And there's no good comes out of it ever. Well, God will bring good out of it, but again, it's a miserable path. We've been down it, you've been down it, I've, we've all been down it. It's not good. So, literally, you're not, you can't get away from God, okay? That's, that's a foolish thought to start with. Yet, sin takes us away from God. Sin tempts us and causes us to turn away. And then you're on the path of backsliding. But remember that. It's always a turning from the face of God. We need to be facing God at all times and be obedient. So he turns from. And then what happens? Well, the chastening starts. (laughs) And a good thing. Good thing. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, chastening is a good thing. Oh, it's terrible when it's happening. But the overall thing is good, like taking castor oil or something else. You know, it doesn't taste good at the time, but it'll do you good in the long run. So is chastening. And in this book of Jonah, I've always been amazed in that in the brevity of it, in this short narrative and short chapters, we are taught that God's chastisement can come in so many forms so many types, using all kinds of instrumentality. In fact, everything in the creation is at God's access to be an instrument of chastisement. God is unlimited at how He can give you and me a whooping. It's pretty simple. When I grew up, belt a switch or whatever was handy, but God has unlimited resource. And we want to remind you some of these of the chastisement. The first thing we see in verse 4 is God sent a great wind. And the point I want to make here is, or a storm in that regard. Now, I'm going to point out four other things in the book where it specifically says that God prepared them. I think it doesn't say God prepared a great wind because it don't take God no time to prepare a great wind. The great fish was quite a few years in preparing. You know what I mean? I mean, even the gourd and the worm, and that was, you know, preparing the wind. Later on, it'll say a vehement east wind, but that's an unordinary thing. But but here again, it, it could say it, but anyway, it's of God's doing, so he sent a great wind or prepared a great wind. This is the first element in the chasing on the ship that Jonah has taken to get away from God. And a point I want to make here is, notice how always your sin, my sin, any sin of disobedience or willful rebellion brings others in danger or harm's way. These people on this boat hadn't done nothing wrong. But Jonah's presence on there as the runaway or disobedient prophet brought them into jeopardy because they were on the same boat in the same storm and it was all his fault. You know the story, don't you? And that finally came out. So sin, again, your backsliding, my backsliding, my yielding to temptation, your yielding to temptation always doesn't just bring harm or keep it in the bottle to you. No, it jeopardizes the safety, the, 
the tranquility, the peace, the whatever of other people. Sin makes that lie. Well, it, it, you know, it's just me. It's just my doing. It's just my decision. It's just what I do. It's not going to affect anybody else. Lie, 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 lie. Sin, there's never been a sin that doesn't affect more than one person, I don't believe. In fact, look at the first sin. It's pretty well speaks for itself. It was universal effect, wasn't it? So they are in jeopardy. And the next point is, Jonah's down there asleep. Now this is important too because when you turn away from God, you know what happens? When we turn away from God, when sin gets a hold of us or leads us astray like a sheep, we go astray. We turn our back. You know, you know what, what we do? We get numb in the conscience. David got numb after his sin, didn't he? Numb enough to commit murder. Numb enough to... Well, Jonah's down here sleeping in the storm. Well, you can bet when you sin, when you backslide, when you disobey God like Jonah did here, there's a storm coming. It's coming. And sadly, you may be asleep when it hits. Not prepared. You know the story. They wake him up. But that's the point I want to make is the numbness of conscience in a backslidden or disobedient condition. When you turn your back to God and don't have your face toward God. You know, I don't want to go into detail on it. I don't have the time. But there is something good that even come out of this. This this is wonderful. That's why I've got to mention it. After they get this all sorted out and Jonah gets tossed overboard, even at his own request, in order for the sea to subside and so forth, it's like Jesus when he just said, peace be still. The Bible says when they throwed him overboard, the sea quit its raging. So the storm stopped. And this is all about Jonah and his disobedience and his chastisement. But look what happened in the midst of it. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice on the Lord, made vows. It appears that they abandoned their gods and embraced the God of Israel. Now, again, we see how God can bring good even out of your or my disobedience. And while that put them in jeopardy and whoever had cargo on this ship, God was able to turn that around and bring good. So God, God can do that, and only God can do that, and we praise Him for that. Well, you know the story, it says then in verse uh, uh, 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish. So again, this fish didn't grow up overnight big enough to swallow a man. It was in preparation, you know. God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. This is the second part of his chastisement. And we won't go into all details, but you can read what Jonah went through there. And uh, chapter 2, and Jonah seems to have repented, pleaded unto the Lord for deliverance from the fish. He was vomited out on dry ground. And then the second time the Lord told him, to go to Nineveh and preach to that city. So, I used to think that Jonah hit the deck of running when that fish vomited at him out. But anymore, I have a question of doubt about just how much his will was changed because of what he ends up doing. 
I don't believe, and this is personal, I don't believe he totally embraced God's will for this mission or this objective of going and preaching there. I believe, tend to believe, he does what we are prone to do. He does what God says to do in order to stay out of trouble, but he doesn't do it with any joy or any passion. The reason I believe that is because once he does it, he pouts. He's not happy about what he done, and he's not happy about the potential results. That's half-hearted, if you ask me. And again, I'm not judging Jonah as much as I'm looking at this and saying, you know, I've got to be careful not to do that too, because that can happen to anybody. I'm sure any of us would want to get out of the belly of a fish. I'm not saying he didn't repent. I'm just saying I'm not sure it was 100% because of his attitude when he did do the right thing, how he reacted. He obeyed, but it's almost like he did it in spite of not wanting to do it. And you know, that's a pathetic place for a Christian to be. I mean, in other words, if a person came to church solely because they read 1 Corinthians 11 that God had made some people sick and killed some people in the church at Corinth for not doing what he said concerning the Lord's Supper, you're coming to church for the wrong reasons. You're coming to church out of a fear of punishment, not out of a reverential fear and worship. So you're doing what God says, but you're not liking what you're doing. I mean, I've stood, been privileged to stand in a pulpit for 31 years. And let me tell you, over the years, you can look into the faces of people and see who's happy to be there and who's going through the motions. It gets easier with time. And as you see those expressions, and I realize we don't all come all the time the same way prepared to worship. I mean, it's, you know... Things can be going on and distract any of us. That's why we pray that we can leave that stuff at the door and come on in here and worship. But you can look into people's faces and when you're preaching and you can see they're not enjoying what you're saying or they got their mind on someplace they'd rather be than here. But it's the right thing to be here. You're not going to get a blessing out of that by being forced in your own mind or by somebody else to do God's will. No. You're going to reap what you sow. If you don't put your heart into it, you ain't going to get no blessing out of it. So, Jonah does what he's supposed to, but it almost seems like, I'll do it, but I'll do it under protest. Because he's not happy once he's done it. And he's not happy with what God does. I mean, God's going to bring a citywide revival to this place. He's not happy about it. He's angry about it. So that tells me something was going on in his heart. And then we come down here and we see, as we read in our text, that God saw that Jonah's preaching had an effect. God was instrumental in that, of course, bringing about a conviction of sin. This is what we hope for, this kind of revival. But yet our text says it displeased Jonah. He's not happy about it. And well, what would have made him happy? Probably if God had just wiped him off. Just just destroyed them like Sodom and Gomorrah. After all, they're Gentiles, you know. It deplete. Why would that displease a preacher? 
Man, wouldn't we love to see something like this on a small scale? Much less on this scale. And so he's very angry. He just wants to die. He gets upset. He's pouting. He's depressed. No joy. And verse 5 is one of the most pathetic descriptions of a Christian that we'll probably ever read anywhere in the Bible. So after doing what he's told to do, he goes out of the city, sets down on the east side, makes him a little booth. This, this is just gathering a bunch of sticks and limbs and junk, kind of like you see homeless people in cardboard, something like that. I mean, gathers him some little something of brush and stuff. You know, Israelites made booths out of brush and stuff. A little arbor or something sat in it so he can shade himself. And just wait and see what's going to happen. See if after 40 days, if God does indeed recognize their repentance or God wipes it out. That is a pathetic place to be. Now, don't raise your hand, but all of us that have been there, you know. Yeah. I know how pathetic it is because I've been there. I've had to elbow Jonah out of the way to get in the shade of the booth. It's pathetic. But again, we're all prone to pout over providence when things don't go our way. In fact, I would, I would say, I'll confess this to you. As a preacher, my pouting would be for the opposite reason. I want to see something like this happen and God doesn't do it and it seems like your labor is vain so you just, well, might as well die. I mean, just might as well quit preaching. Nobody's hearing, nobody's believing, nobody's being, you see, just the opposite. He pouted for one reason, because of God's graciousness and mercy. I could pout for a lack of, and I've been tempted to do that and I have done that. Well, God, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing it with the right motive and I want to see, you know, you glorified in salvations of souls and you're not doing it. I might as well quit. That's a temptation that every preacher can face. The results are not what we would like them to be. Do I have a reason to pout over it? No. You just go and preach. In fact, you know, a lot of times this will slam me under that booth with this thought. What God told Isaiah. Isaiah, go and preach to them. They're not going to hear you, by the way, but you, you go ahead and pray. What? What? Why? Isaiah didn't do that, did he? I tend to question that. So, well, why in the world would we be engaged in something that's not going to produce any results? Sometimes it may just be a witness against or God be glorified in other ways that we don't even know about. Not ours to question, is it? But anyway, there he is in the pathetic little booth sitting out there pouting. And he's hard-headed too. If you hadn't got that impression already, I mean, Jonah's pretty hard-headed like we are. And so, again, you just visualize this and you, it's hard to even feel sorry for the guy. He's brought it all on himself and he's sitting out there under this little arbor. Miserable. 
And of course, backsliding, disobedience, and being unhappy with God's problems, that you're just heaping misery on yourself. You did it, God hadn't done nothing to. You. Except use a fish and storm to get him back on track so far. And then the Bible says God prepares a gourd. And this is so such a blessing. You know, verse 6, God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. Now you know gourds, are, gourds grow fast. They're a vine, they grow fast. But uh, I don't think one would grow up big enough to make a shade over a brush arbor in 40 days. Probably might in 40 days, but I don't know. If, but God did something miraculous here. I think this was much more instantaneous because God actually refers to which came up in the night and went away in the night. You know, so so God miraculously, this was a super gourd. I mean, it come out and spread out some leaves. And notice this, to come over his head to deliver him from his grief. What a blessing. Now here again, we just rejoice in God's mercy, don't it? That even when we pout and are sitting in our little pity booth, God's still good to us. And God's good to us for a reason like He was to Jonah. He's, he's got a lesson to teach here. And goodness is a part of that lesson. You know, when we're having these pity parties, which again, pouting over providence about the same thing. God needs to remind us, and He does remind us, different ways, not always the same way, that, you know, it's up to me to do what I want to. You're just a little bitty part of all this. You know, just do what you're told and be blessed. I can bless you in obedience, I can bless you in disobedience, but I'm going to give you a little lesson just to remind you who's in charge here and what your part in all of this is. So again, I look at verse 6 and I look how that God has continued to love me and bless me even when I pouted or pitied or whatever. And I'm sure you can do the same thing, can't you? Did he deserve it? Absolutely not. You know what he deserved? That little booth to be struck down and took out in the woods and give a good, good whooping. But instead, God braised up a gourd to shadow his head and to console his groove. And here's the only happy time we read about Jonah. Jonah's exceedingly glad. But may I say to you, for the wrong reason, He's exceedingly glad of a gourd because it's putting a shade over his head. But we don't read about any happiness about what God's going to do in Nineveh. Now, we could title this a different thing, a gourd in Nineveh or whatever. What is the comparison between being happy over a gourd that shades your head and not happy over God sparing a city from judgment and destruction? But again, you don't think right when you're in a backslidden condition and outside of God's will. When you're doing what God does without passion and without zeal and without the right motive, then you're not going to be thankful like you ought to for the right things. And you can be thankful for things that indeed you ought to be thankful for, but don't put them in the number one slot to be thankful for. 
There's other things much more important to be thankful for than that thing. But Jonah's exceedingly glad for the gourd, but he doesn't care at all about Nineveh it prepares. Well, to rectify this situation, God prepares a worm. And the worm smoked the gourd. We've seen this happen. I remember in Arkansas, we put out little tomatoes and the cut worms would cut them down right at the top of the ground. You know, when that little stem is young and tender, we hated cut worms. Cut worms were no good. They cut the plant down and they do it overnight. You can set them out today and go out there the next morning or a day thereafter and there they are, circled cut by cut worm. We dig around and find them, kill them for good. Well, this worm killed the gourd. I can relate to that. <laughs> Very simply, anybody that's ever farmed can. Well, it withered up, and now the shade's gone. Well, that's pretty bad, isn't it? God prepared the worm, just like he prepared the gourd. The thought comes to mind here of what Job said. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Curse God and die, his wife said. He said, shall we not receive good and evil at the hand of God? Jonah and us don't seem to be as smart as Job most of the time. We get all upset that it went from bad to worse. Now, forget the good, and now here I am in the heat again. And to enforce the point and bring Jonah to where exactly he wants him to apply the lesson. As if the heat's not enough, he brings and prepares this vehement east wind. Now I don't know how to describe that other than the hottest wind you've ever been in. I mean imagine, and I can relate to it a little bit, I worked in a plant where we had molten zinc and things like that, and we had fans in there to try to stir the air a little, but if you point the fan the wrong way over the heat, it's worse than not having the fan at all because it's blowing that hot air right, just scorching you. That's the only impression I get when I read a vehement east wind that this wind has heat in it like you wouldn't believe. To the point that Jonah is fainting. I guess we could say, uh, you know, dehydrating here in this point. And again, he says, it's better to die. Well, you know what? I'm going to agree with him here. He says in verse 8, it's better for me to die than to live. Any Christian that wants to disobey God, you'd be better off dead than to have to go through that chastening process before God gets done with you. Yeah, you wish you are dead. In other words, this, folks. There is no more miserable place for one of God's children to be than to be backslidden and disobedient. It is misery upon misery upon misery. And if you know anything about it, you know what I'm saying is true. That's the most misery a person can be in is be a child of God outside of the will of God or unrepentant of sin. And he says it just be better. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like Jesus said, it had been better if, if Judas had never been born. But he was born. And he did what he did and he suffered because of it. So now we have a question and a question repeated. Verse 4, God had asked Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry? 
And that question means, are you justified in this pouting? I mean, do you really, really do? And I, I can, if somebody asked me of that certain times, if I ask you that at certain times, well, of course I am, so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. And off we could go. Boy, we could give a list of stuff this long about how justified we were to be angry and because of the circumstances and what they did and what they said, and blah, 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 blah. I missed the whole point. See, you don't think right. You're numb to what's happening. Your conscience not working right because you got your back toward God. And so God has to use a storm or a fish or a gourd or a worm or whatever it is to get you turned back around, to get me turned back around. And by the way, He can use a rooster. He can use an ass. There's no limit. God has everything at His disposal to turn us back around. And that's what He's going to do with Jonah. And if you're His child, that's what He's going to do with you. He's turned me around so many times. It's not funny. I'm not proud of it. But I can speak from experience and not have to just preach from Jonah like I don't know anything about it. So now his question comes again. Verse 9. Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And here's his hard hardness. I do well to be angry, even unto death. Well, the lesson hadn't hit home yet, has it? The arrow hadn't found its mark yet, but God's not done. God's not done. Now again, he was happy for the gourd. He wasn't happy for Nineveh. He's angry and upset that the gourd's gone. He's not angry and upset over what God's doing with Nineveh. I mean, he was because God didn't do what he wanted him to do. So again, the question both times is, are you justified in your anger and reacting accordingly? Is it justified? And it's not. never is. Pouting. Is there ever a real justified reason to pout? Especially over what God is doing? Of course not. Kind of like the questions Job was asked by God. Uh, Job, where were you when I created? Uh, where were you and what were you doing when I did this? And, uh, you know, do you think I am capable of creating these things and administering these things? And uh, uh, what part do you play in all that? And that's meant to humble us. And as hard as old Jonah may be here and as hard as we may get in our anger and our rebellion and our backsliding, God can break us like an ice cube if He wants to at any point in time. So it's unjustified. And so here it comes the clincher. Verse 10. Amazing. And you know, I, I did, did mention Job, so let me draw this here. In your own mind, you go to those chapters where God finally speaks to Job. And the conversation doesn't go anything like Job thought it would be if he could have that conversation, did it? Likewise right here. Yes, I'm justified in my anger. Lord said, you had pity on a gourd, which you didn't labor, you didn't make it grow, it came up in the night and it perished in the night. And should I not spare that great city where more 60,000 people that don't know the right hand and the left and much cattle? 
So here he's making the comparison. And there's something very important here. Stay with me. He says in verse 10, you had pity on the gourd. You know what pity is. You know? Uh, we pity something that when we sorrow or grieve over it because of what happened to it or whatever, we, we pity other people because of their state or condition. Our pity of Jonah is not, again, justified except that we've been there and we know what it feels like. He said, you pitied the gourd. He had feeling, compassion, sorrow over the loss of the gourd. And God reminds him literally what God is saying here. The gourd was a gift. That's it. You didn't have one thing to do with it. You didn't labor. You built a booth. I caused a gourd to come up. Kind of like fig leaves and animal skins in Genesis, isn't it? Man's feeble attempts, and God does much better. You didn't think about it. You didn't plan it. You didn't make it grow. I did all that. And that was a gift. And that was grace because you certainly didn't deserve it in your little pity party in your booth. And yet now you're so upset because it's not here. Why should you be upset? You didn't have nothing to do. You haven't lost anything because you didn't invest anything. Really, he's teaching him salvation by grace here. God did it all. So you're going to be upset and sorry over the gourd that you didn't have one thing to do with. You were just the beneficiary of it. And yet you're angry when I do that to a city that has 60,000 infant children in it that don't know their right hand from their left. Because the word pity in verse 10 is the same word as spare in verse 11. It's the same word. So what we have here is a comparison of a gourd and a city. Should not I pity Nineveh if you can pity a gourd? I believe he's bringing it home, don't you? And he's showing Jonah his smallness and God's greatness. Lesson applied. End of book. End of story. I don't believe, personally, Jonah had a word to say after that. Just like Job. What can I say? And I want us to apply that today. Whatever respect is needed. That pouting over God's will or God's providence in our lives or whatever affects us really shows how small we are. And it shows how great God is. We get upset over 
things we shouldn't when there are things we should get upset over. Things that are worth being upset over. Things that are worth grieving over. The world's going to hell. There's something to grieve over. Friends, family, loved ones are lost. There's something to grieve over. Not because the sun didn't shine and I could do such and such or somebody mistreated me at work or blah, blah, or blah, blah. Those are the small things. God had His eye on the big things and that's where we need to have our eyes. You pity a gourd, I'm pitying multitudes of people. There is no comparison. Pouting gets you nowhere. Providence is something to rejoice in. So we can be joyful, obedient, and as I read that last verse, one scripture comes to mind. Again, God does what He wants to, and it's a blessing to be a part of it. Jonah should be rejoicing that he was privileged to be a part of this great thing that God was doing in this city that did not deserve it. And yet God was there. That's grace. Pouting denied him that. He could have been joyfully obedient recognizing as Romans 9.18 says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and whom I will all heart. You can pout over it or you can rejoice in it. God help us to be aware of the temptation to pout and to rejoice in divine providence. God bless this to your hearing.